Hi friends, welcome back to the Oscillator Stone. Today's guest is an internationally acclaimed dance teacher and judge of the underground dance competitions Just Debut and 36 Chambers of Styles. He's also the co-creator of the masterpiece slash clusterfuck that is yours truly. So, without further ado, here's my father, Sekou Peru. Uh, Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, hmm. So I love yeah, what you do. We... Yeah, I'm a fan of what you do. I think it's important. Um, your perspective, coming from a very intuitive, uh, natural, kinesthetic understanding of your own, and uh, expressing that and, and bringing, uh, allowing it to be a universal language and approach to people like yourself, because sometimes we think. You know, there has to be a specific way of doing things. And we also have our inherent way. And I think if you found your inherent way, I, I tend to call it a gift. And then that's your gift, which guides you through life and helps you connect the pieces or, you know, connect the dots. So I'm very proud of you and I'm, I'm, I'm excited to be here. Yay. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Yay. I, yeah, I'm, I'm like the oldest baby. <laughs> You're always be my uh, baby. I'm definitely, so I don't know if you know about this meme that is like, it's Kirby. Kirby, the like, that that like pink character or whatever. And he's like pointing at um, uh, like a whiteboard and, and the whiteboard just says, I'm baby. And it's like when people <laughs> are like, or like they're like I have adult responsibilities, but I don't want to do them. And then it's just right. a photo of him being like I'm baby. So yeah, I'm at this point I no longer have resistance to being referred to as baby. <laughs> I'm like yes, I'm baby. Like I'm so over this. Um, so yeah, and thank you again. I, I would love for you to talk a little bit about what you do and the sort of I refer to it as a lineage. I believe that it's a lineage. Um, uh, I refer to it as a lineage of emergent ritual, and I would love for you to talk about um, what that looks like, what what how that's manifested, and your path in manifesting it. Um, I definitely agree with it as an emergent ritual because I've been doing it since I was young. Um, I didn't always know how how young I was, and my mother told me I was two years old, which blew my mind. Because I'm like, how do I, how do you do that too? But I think inherently all children who are around a community that's very um, uh, musically inclined and, and rhythmic. And, you know, growing up in the time that I did, I was surrounded by gathering, a huge family, lots of cousins. And my grandmother's siblings, they were very close. They all were very close. So they always gathered in celebration for cookouts barbecues, every excuse to get together, and they rotated to each other's houses. And so as a young kid, I, I was immersed with music and food and, and dance and celebration. Um, and, you know, they were very active in the church, which for me was an extension of that from a child's perspective. I looked at it all as a party, like a gathering. And it kind of influenced my, you know, my, uh, influenced me as a, as, a, as a teenager as well. I was always into music and movement. And uh, as far as it becoming emergent, it was kind of the coping mechanism for me um, early on because of the dynamic of my family, 
um, and the neighborhood that I was growing up in, very, very um, violent. You know, you're talking about the conception in the beginning of the crack era. So it was very, very hard to like navigate through different neighborhoods for the fear of gangs or being jumped by a group of, you know, unruly teenagers your age because the crime and the, and, and, and the environment was just that. So for me early on, I was very introverted and very shy. And my first um, ritual, if you will, that emerged was drawing, believe it or not. And I used to collect comic books and I just started drawing the characters. And that was kind of like a meditative way for me to channel my focus and my creative energy into something I love to do. So I would spend hours drawing. And not until I met uh, Kafele, your uncle Dave, right? Um, I call him your uncle, he's like my best friend. Right, he's basically uh, my uncle. He's basically your uncle, right? <laughs> and uh, we started becoming partners in crime in terms of dancing because we weren't into the sports as much as other kids, although we did it. We weren't into all of these other things that were going on in the neighborhood. Dance was kind of our thing. And we started breaking early, B-boys. Um, and that became my discipline. It became my coping mechanism. It became my voice. It became the thing that allowed me to express the things on my heart and on my mind that I couldn't really say as a shy child. And it gave me confidence and it helped me develop my will and also helped me um, <clears throat> Um, develop the discipline and know that, okay, I was good at something. There's something I, good, I was good at. And I didn't always know that I was dancing young, like my mother told me. I just know I was immersed and around it. But when I started expressing that, my grandmother and my mother weren't surprised. They were like, okay, yeah, you've been doing this since you were the baby, basically. And so it was just an intuitive way. I think the time spoke to us too. Um, and it, it, it was like our thing. I think hip hop at that point was like our thing. Like it was the, the voice for a generation. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was very important because like I said, all the violence around me, all of the influences that weren't so good, this kept me out of trouble. And so we blasted the music in the basement. You know, I was that kid that walked around with a stereo system on his shoulder, you know? Yeah, you were <laughs> that, that guy, time. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we literally like, went to Congolium and bought tile with our own money we saved. You know, mm -hmm. we literally were hunting for people throwing away refrigerator boxes, just go get it before the trash collector would get it and break down the box and take mm -hmm. the tile and basically bring a studio to the street on the corner, the, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And that was um, our ritual, you know, every day after school, we made sure we did our homework and lunch. We, you know, we went out of our way to do all the things we were supposed to do quicker than normal so we could dance and break all day. And I'm talking about three to four hours every day for like, who knows, eight years, mm -hmm. nonstop. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that's the beginning, you know? Yeah, well, I definitely wanna to speak to this piece that that feels really present there about initiation, right? As a, mm -hmm. as a sort of a, a genre of ritual, right? One of my friends, internet friends, <laughs> Michael Garfield, on one of his podcasts about ritual, he talks about how incarceration ends up being an initiation for a lot of people who um, don't have any sort of way to initiate themselves in like a healthier way. So they're, mm -hmm. they're, they sort of become attracted to 
to danger and to the edges of like what's socially acceptable because that's what an initiation kind of is it's it's an exploration of the edge of one phase of life and the beginning of another so it's this liminal space and we don't really have in like modern western capitalist society we don't really have an explicit transitionary um ritual that celebrates and also grieves um the person you were and so people often end up getting into like gangs or um experimenting with drugs because they're trying to reach these states that are very normal natural and intuitive for humans to want to reach as we sort of psychopomp ourselves right and but for you it's so it seems like you had this like hip-hop was like this um this sort of mystery tradition in the way that it sounds like you experienced it where you initiated each other and this sort of bridges into that like this concept that (laughs) i nearly got canceled for um (laughs) which is like this idea of young eldering which is like not eldering in the traditional sense by any means and not meant to just diminish the importance of actual elders but a way of recognizing how um especially in like i think diasporic cultures people who are kind of uh, fragmented from their place of origin, such as like people in the African diaspora, such as you exactly. and I, there's this need to almost download things really young and take on the space of responsibility and and um, community support and facilitation really young. Um, it's funny too, because like in my generation, we don't, we almost like don't necessarily need to do that as much, but I think that people of color definitely still have that desire to do that really young because at one point it was like necessary because the lineage is sort of broken in some in one place and it sounds like your experience uh was like very much a a mutual initiation because you didn't really have like a an elder in the traditional sense doing that for you yeah I, i i agree we had influences of the older generation but they had quote unquote their own thing right Mm -hmm. and that seems to be a perpetual condition of diasporic cultures because of the fragmentation so for example things are constantly colonized and take from us and become industrial businesses that make other groups of people billionaires and we're still poor but we produce all of these um these countercultures if you will Mm -hmm. right these cultures that counter the oppression that become an expression of the oppression Mm-hmm. So, and, 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 and for us, that's what hip hop was. And I think that's what most of the cultures of music and dance and ritual we've produced over the hundreds of years of being, um, I like to say captives, prisoners of war more than slaves mm-hmm. here yeah. because our conditions are still as such. Um, yeah, I agree. There is this, um, this, youth mentoring, the self-mentoring or the self-initiation process that happens. But I've also learned that there are fragments of things that are left behind that we kind of have pulled together those pieces and created a, a, a context for ourselves from these fragmented, dismembered pieces. And shout out to all of the, uh, the scholars who sacrificed so much throughout the years that might not be so publicly known that we were able to get access to, um, you know, yeah. Elijah Muhammad, the 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 five percent movement. These are these are uh, 
schools of thought that when I was a kid and I was flunking out of school, I had to repeat the seventh grade, right? Mm. And that's because of the peer pressure and the things around running with the wrong crowd and, and deciding to just not focus on schoolwork. When I became a five percenter in the, the nation of the gods and the earths, which means king and queens, we learned mathematics, the supreme mathematics. And that came with hip hop um, at that time, which was basically the understanding of knowledge and wisdom, the fragmented ancient cultures that had survived over time through different, uh, different diasporic lineages. So we were able to gather a lot of those, that, that knowledge and insert that into hip hop. So today it would be called native tongue or conscious hip hop or conscious rap. But in that time, you know, the B-boys, the DJs, the MCs, the graph writers, or the uh, what they call uh, uh, modern artists today, right? There's another colonizing gentrification process of our art, which is basically the same thing as temple writings or cave paintings. Mm. When we were younger, we were able to make those comparisons, and, and I get chills even talking about it, and self-enlighten ourselves and go, oh, we're yeah. still practicing original, original hominin humanoid culture. Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. So there's this enlightenment, we call it, that happens in this higher, uh, that higher part of our, our conscious and our psyche at moments when we, okay, we're confirmed. And then we continue to move forward and trust that intuition a little bit more. And my generation was, I don't think the first, but definitely a key one because the culture that we produced has become a global culture because mm -hmm. of it mm -hmm. and is being reactivated in places like Hawaii, in places like mm -hmm. the Philippines, in places yes. like Fiji, in places yes. like, you know, really, really raw uh, Tahiti, really, really raw old cultures that are some of the oldest, even Australia, some of the oldest cultures on the planet still being practiced are accepting hip hop into their cultures. Mm -hmm which for me is an amazing thing, which teaches me that hip hop is also an original culture on the planet. It just yeah. might not have been called hip hop right. at the time. Um, and so- Yeah, actually yeah. I wanna ask you uh, more specifically about hip hop as an emergent ritual expression framework. And, and uh, I think that this is true of a lot of like diasporic cultures, um, not just specifically uh, in Black America with, within the context of hip-hop because you also see this with like Haitian voodoo and uh, mm. stuff like candomblé, mm. um, the kind of like fragmentation being not really even that fragmented, just like having to be reborn to take on new names. There's this right. like uh, process of um, the renaming doesn't necessarily change the uh, the, the underlying signified energy of the deity or of the practice. Like um, something that is really fascinating to me is this, uh, this deity um, called uh, Brige, who is a Celtic goddess, but is also a goddess in uh, Haitian voodoo. So how is, how is Brige also Maman Brigitte um, yeah. At the same time, you know, like what is that? Yeah, yeah. There's this like, um, and I think that this this character she shows up in a lot of cultures, even though like yeah. she's the claim is that she originated in Ireland or Scotland. There's a bit of debate about that, but um, how do we carry um, these sort of similar or even the same uh, archetypal imprints 
um, despite being of different cultures. And I think that the key is to actually study how diasporic people have managed to preserve um, through, you know, syncretism with Christianity and whatnot, um, their, their, um, their ritual practices, their, their mythologies. Uh, there's something beyond just the labels that we have. Like, I do think there's a way to engage with the rituals of, of, of different cultures in a way that is like not really having reverence and is exploitative. And I think that that's a real thing and that's a real problem. But I think that there's an oversimplification that happens when we want to completely close practices to people right, of, right. of foreign cultures because there's so much medicine in the cross-pollination there. And I'm kind of going on a little bit of a tangent, but I really want to hear you talk about specifically the parallels. Like how is hip hop really just a, another emergent ritual African diasporic expression? Well, the symbols, one, the circle or the cipher. Um, yeah, that's the big one. (laughs) Well, that's the big one, right? You'll see right away that no matter how old or young the culture, when they gather, which is actually culture in practice, culture in its conception, right? When we come together, gather in a circle. Um, You know, if you go to even the boardroom of corporate, you know, corporate ladder, their tables are in circles, they gather in circles. So I think that the oldest side of us, um, is the circle, the cipher, or the decoding or transmission of ancient information, if you will. So even the term ciphering comes from deciphering or ciphering meaning yeah. communication or language. So mm-hmm. when you observe the language etymologically, which I love, I love etymology. Yeah. Because um, it helps me. <laughs> now people can helps, know where I get it from. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It helps me decode things in real time. And yeah. look at words as also living things, not just mm. blanket things. It, it makes me helps me look at the culture as an active, living, conscious being too, because mm. we can't do it all consciously. So therefore, mm. there has to be something beyond our own conscious understanding that guides us. That's the first thing. I think uh, the language, ritual of writing, and transmission and pres- preservation of culture, and 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 I've traveled the world. And everywhere I go, I see graffiti. So when I did research on graffiti or cave painting or writing on walls or script or scripture, you find that we're still being who we are, like being natural, prominent human beings. If I go to a place where I don't understand the language, I look for the pictorial language. Even though the language is different, this still means slippery and wet. This still means stop. This still means yield. This still means caution. This still means safe. This means unsafe. This means danger. So having those, that universal language, when you don't have the actual language, you fall back into the universal language of intuition, symbolism, gesture and expression. Mm -hmm. And that's when you start to realize, oh, there is a nonverbal communication process happening all the time. And we've actually depended on, I believe, language from one particular point of view rather than sound and vibration and color, which is Mm -hmm. in symbol, which is the purest form of language and ritual practice, if you will. So Mm -hmm. stumbling into this intuition only validates your point again, that there's this natural innate intelligence in all of us that is guiding us. And if we allow uh, what we do know 
to help us go to the unknown, <laughs> it, they kind of play <laughs> off of each other. And I think sometimes we think we have to choose and really there's a complete scope. Uh, so, you know, if we have a box, then we know when we're out of the box. If we have a form, then we know when we're breaking form. It's like right. a kid who learns how to color in the lines. They're not going to color in the lines at first. They have to be taught that. And once they know that, they're conscious of the other. And I think that that's just an innate process of, of intelligence of human beings. So um, that would be one way I would elaborate on it without you know doing what you do, because we also have that in common. Yeah. We can just right. keep going. <laughs> what were we talking right. about? Yeah. <laughs> right. Because there's yeah. so much. Mm -hmm. There's so many dimensions that we learn from. We're trying to use them all. You know, I'm mm -hmm. very, you know, diasporic Africans are very um, animated mm -hmm. because we use our whole body to mm -hmm. communicate. Mm -hmm. And cultures that aren't familiar with us look at that as aggressive or they look at that mm -hmm. as inappropriate or look at it yeah. that based on their own perspective. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there's a relation, there's a familiarity there too. Mm -hmm. They also understand it. So, and there's also, I think, like a, um, like the archetype of the spider, right? I feel like is really powerful in like a, specifically like West African diasporic, mm, yeah. the cultural body of like weaving all the parts together and seeing how they all relate, right? And not necessarily Absolutely. revealing all of the parts and kind of there's this like, um, there's certain wisdom in only offering certain parts of the whole picture, right. um, but still seeing the whole picture, right? And I think that there's something really, uh, well, for me, I grew up with like Anansi tales and stuff. So for me, there's something really, right. really, uh, I feel like that's specifically something we both kind of resonate with is that, that archetype. I love what you're saying about the circle. Um, I am also, I'm curious about, um, Cause you, you had like a time too, where it wasn't just like the dance circle, right? There was also like the, um, the freestyle, right? Like the, the rhyming, rapping kind of yes, circle. Yes. And, <laughs> and it's so funny because like the, it's become such like a parody of itself in the mainstream <laughs> that I think people forget like the power of, um, it's funny too, because I was reading, um, like it, it's fair in America that we've come to associate um, the rap cipher with blackness because I think specifically black men have kind of been the face of that, the poster children of that and have like carried that uh, tradition forward in the States specifically. Um, yeah. But I was reading about this practice uh, in, the, in the like Norse tradition called flighting. And I was reading about it and I was like, that's a rap battle. <laughs> So there's something really universal and it's funny because like in America specifically, I think the uh, black cultural mythology speaks to everyone, mm, but there's yeah. this almost, and I think that there's like a tension between like this p real pain of like culture, of being stolen, culture being stolen, of being exploited. And at the same time, there's this other side to it where it's like, um, the first humans, right? Well, I mean, there's this is now officially up for debate, but for a while, and there's still evidence for it, so I'm still gonna mention it here. But like, right. there's 
there's evidence that, you know, the origins of humanity is Central Africa. So um, whatever traditions, rituals, things kind of happened there initially, everyone has access to that, right? That's sort of right. like the, 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 the joining factor. And, and I think we draw these sort of arbitrary lines, uh, sometimes for good reason. And sometimes we draw the arbitrary lines as a way, it's coming from a place of pain. And I think when once we sort of resolve that pain uh, together, you know, in like yeah. a, <laughs> I, I see it as like a, a, maybe like all the different cultures in America need to just like have a rap battle with each other. Like in a, in a, in a um, obviously a metaphorical sense, not necessarily like a, a real, like, you know, rap battle of everyone, but like a, like a, the, the metaphor underneath that is like the, um, the sort of ping pong back and forth of, of ideas of, of memes, you know, units of information. Right. Um, you said it really well earlier, but I can't remember how you phrased it. It was really eloquent. Um, there's like a, a flatness, like a recognition of our, our mutual humanness in the circle. We're standing together. We're all like in a a place where everyone can kind of see everyone else and everyone kind of gets their chance to play um and we're all playing off of each other so there's like a certain ego death while there's also like a recognition of what each individual brings to the table uh that i think is really beautiful and really universal i don't know if you know about like the authentic relating community but they have a practice called circling um and when I was reading about circling, I've never actually done circling, uh, but when I was reading about circling, I was like, that's a rap battle. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I'm like, right, right. There's right. that, I think that the circle is the, almost like maybe the quintessential human symbol, right? Besides the spiral, like the circle and the exactly. spiral are like the two that show up everywhere. And I personally feel really honored to be someone who feels like they carry a lineage that can connect to the, to the human frequency, right? Um, mm -hmm. and reminding people that they have it too. It feels really important for me. And I think I have like the privilege of be of that. My generation has the privilege of that. Uh, I think past generations have had to kind of be more protective. And I think that that's fully understandable. Um, yeah. and I'm, yeah. I feel really honored to be a part of a cultural shift where we're I'm like, I think that it's maybe safe to share again. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> well, you know, it, we've never, as a, as a people, as a, as, mm -hmm. a, as, a, as a collective group of consciousness of people, mm -hmm. innately, I've never experienced us never not being willing to give. I think that mm -hmm. that's the biggest uh, blessing of us as an oppressed people because we've never lost our nature to give and to share. You know, and I think that the bigger side of the ritual is that we're communicating with the earth, the moon, the stars, the sun. We're not just communicating with each other. And I think that mm. in the highest form, that's why it's such a, you can find those comparisons and we can share because at the, when we get to the highest forms of it, we go, oh, oh, well, we're just communicating with the highest. Right. We're communicating with the things that sustain us here and beyond. Mm. And so there's a bigger form of communication. And I think that we've always reached for that because of one, in origin, but two, because of the oppression in the state, the systems mm. 
that have put us in the state that we're in. Do we have to defend and protect it? Absolutely. I still feel that way, but it doesn't stop me from sharing. it. So again, yeah. you know, I resolve the conflict because the culture is helping me because the culture itself is conflict resolution in its origin. So as long as I remember that, I can resolve the conflict of self. I can look at the conflict out of myself and I can keep producing the counterculture that helps me cope and resolve the conflict outside of myself. As long as the person that I'm sharing with understands that, there'll be no conflict. But when the person is trying to continue to activate the system that keeps me in the oppression by using the culture to do that, then I have to defend that. And mm -hmm. it, you know, my defense is simply just reminding you of the origin. My defense is simply tapping into the highest part of it, pulling on the pain of the origin it comes from, and then there's no competition. Unless you've gone through the pain I've gone through, you really can't get, there's no competition. I'm always going to, and that's where the ancestral lineage comes from, you know? Mm, yeah. There are people who've practiced this culture who aren't here anymore, mm -hmm. who only did this that I can call on. There are people who supported me when I was doing this that aren't here anymore that I can call on. There are people who around the world that look up to me as a shaman, even though I don't consider myself that to them. Uh -huh. I actually have to accept that because mm. it's also a fact yeah. in that self-initiation process. Because I didn't have a shaman teach me, sometimes I denied that shaman within me that's mm -hmm. always been guiding me to shaman. Yeah, yeah I think a lot of people are in a place right now um, where the there's so much good stuff in what you shared that I, yeah. <laughs> um, because I want to talk about that pain, right? That ancestral yeah. pain. And I have yeah. it that like, no matter what your skin looks like, you have an ancestral, deep ancestral wound. And I think mm -hmm. actually, this is a little bit controversial, but I think that people of color have a weird privilege of being able to access that pain and therefore the, what's underneath it more than a lot of European people because the, specifically in places like America, the culture has incentivized dissociation. And it's like, right. you get all these things if you identify as white, which is actually a meaningless term. Um, right. And it neglect all of the like richness of the land-based traditions that you actually come from. Exactly. Um, and then there's these other people, you don't wanna be like these people. And it's like, yeah, but these people have been forced to learn how to, how to, how to, you know, learn the alchemy of being human and right. then and there's a lot of people uh obviously people not of european descent but i think that there's like a huge like within the culture of whiteness there is this um this little carrot on a stick that's like yeah just ignore that and 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 follow the like capitalist right. rat race and and everything will be okay um and it sucks and i hate it and it's freaking annoying. And I think, you know, that's that's me kind of like um, flirting with danger with in 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 regards to the to the privilege conversation, right? Because it's like right. Well, know, we're both how we're can, both privileged. Yeah. We're privileged by the pain, mm -hmm. which gives birth to such beautiful um, resilience. Mm -hmm. You know, the question would be, will we still be able to generate such beautiful forms without mm -hmm. the pain? Well, yeah, life mm -hmm. still brings the pain. You right. know, there's still landslides and earthquakes <laughs> yeah. and, and tsunamis yeah. and, you know, things that are unexpected that the X factor of life. So, yeah, 
all yeah. humans would still be able to access and generate pain, the pain of loss. So the pain is always going to be there. Yeah. Um, and the duality of the pain and pleasure, you know, mm -hmm. the joy and the pain, if you will. I think that the people who identify as white, which is only a construct here because I've been all over Europe. Yeah. And it's a new construct for Europeans because they come mm -hmm. from earth, earth cultures, water cultures, fire cultures, mm -hmm. cultures that reflect their environment. But it was killed off during the Crusades. It was destroyed during those times when religion dominated mm -hmm. the planet and put the woman in the subservient position in a lot of, yeah. uh, which took away the actual essence of where culture comes from. Because there's no culture <laughs> oh, in existence without a woman. You know what I mean? <laughs> and coming from a, a balanced patriarchal and matriarchal culture, right? Um, there was never, you know, we were forced to run to escape at a certain age because of the environment that we were being born in, because we knew that they had to they had to kill us young because we would grow into men and want to defend our women who were being violated or our sons were being violated. So there's this innate thing in us to fight because we've had to run and not being allowed to fight for so long that now we're willing. So there's this, this movement to, to, to silence that in us mm -hmm. sometimes it's too much because it's nowhere for it to go so mm -hmm. it ends up becoming a self-inducive uh yeah punishment or yeah or, or, or yeah it's or, internalized or, or, yeah yeah it's internalized for us so having that ritual having these practices having these rituals gives us somewhere to put that having you know and sometimes there has to be a secret membership Everything yeah. can't be shared, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah. And then you are able to give access to the things that you can share. Um, no one wants to share their pain right away. Pain is sacred. But if you're in like-minded situations and you're allowed in a safe space to communicate your pain with people who understand it. And I think the privilege of the white people who classify the white, you know, they have a pain too. The pain of recognizing the pain they've influenced or the pain they've inflicted on people. And I think there's a movement in white people to deal with their uh, supremacist mind state or supremacy, supremacy culture, if you will, of exploiting, mm -hmm. dominating and inflicting pain on other peoples that don't look like them. And I think that there's a movement on both sides, a movement for us to try to resolve. We call them allies now, right? Today, mm -hmm. we have white allies. And I think that now a lot of younger white, so-called white people claiming themselves white. I don't tend to call people white unless they claim mm -hmm. white, right? Because mm -hmm. I don't want to activate yeah. any unnecessary. <laughs> yeah, thing yeah. There's in. this movement. There's this movement of like denouncing white as a term. I ask people like, "What is your actual lineage?" Right. I'm exactly. going to call you that. You're Irish. I'm going to call you exactly. fucking Irish. Like exactly. you're I've Polish. I'm going to call you Polish. Right. You're an Ashkenazi Jew. I'm calling you an Ashkenazi Jew. I'm not calling you white. Right. Um, right. That doesn't mean that I'm denying the, the privilege thing. It means that I'm acknowledging the thing underneath that right. actually belongs to you so that the, the privilege human thing side of who you are fall right. away, you know? And also you're not in denial of the fact that they can still benefit from that whiteness that exists in all the right. systemic racism at any moment right. in time. And so the goal yeah. for them, I believe, mm -hmm. and it's, you know, I think that we're in a pre pretty peculiar position to understand whiteness even more than white people do, which is 
ironic than by default, but it's actually a fact. You're gonna have to explain that one to me. <laughs> well, if, if, for example, I don't always know the privilege of being Pan-African or a diasporic mm -hmm. African, mm -hmm because mm -hmm. it comes so innately and so natural to mm -hmm. me that until people say, can you teach me how to dance? I go, what, what are you talking about? Can't everybody dance? And so for a long time, when people would ask our generation to teach them how to dance, it was blasphemy. What are you talking about, mm -hmm. teach you? It lives within you. It's just supposed to jump out. Like I don't <laughs> consider myself a dancer, right? I, I considered the dance something I inherited. That was just natural to me until Japanese people said, can you teach me how to do that? Until Koreans and Europeans from all over the world said, can you teach me how to do that? Then I realized, oh, everybody can't do this. Oh, everybody can't do this like we do because then I could look at all the situation. Well, here's the expression of oppression. And so if you're not in a state of mind to understand what it's like to be oppressed, then of course, you don't know where the fuel you don't know where the motivation, where the context, where the trigger that shifts this into healing for me and medicine for me comes from. So now I can get the opportunity to be a philosopher. I get the opportunity to be, you know, <laughs> an articulate human being and express yeah. from this side what this looks like. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? But at the same time, I can see racism on the face of a racist. I know what it looks like. I can see body language just like I do with any other person. The person is depressed, the person is sad. The person, this is not something that I always want to share with people. Yeah, but there's <laughs> right? a somatic- Because I'm very cautious yeah. in how I deal with people because I yeah. know what being offended feels like all the time. I know what being <laughs> judged feels like all the time. I know what in being inherently a criminal, being looked at as a criminal feels like. So when I deal with human beings, I try to read them based on what they give me. And I try to always protect project, especially in the younger, quote unquote, white people who, who acknowledge themselves as white, I try to have sympathy and empathy for them more, right? Because they're in a very hard position. And what the last thing I want them to do is just give up and just go right to, go back to what their, right. their, their great, great, great grandfathers yeah. have done. Yeah. You know, I want to mm -hmm. give them an opt out, like, okay, Okay, you can use this culture for healing. Like this is what it's for. Mm. But let me understand, let me help you understand what it comes from. So that you can at least look at life as a human being and to say, okay, now I have a I have something to channel my pain through. Now I have something to cope with my bigotry with. I can kind of see how I have some of these innate because I have them too. Yeah. Bigotry I have, right. prejudice I have. I might not be a racist. <laughs> Because right. I don't have the power uh -huh. to inflict racism on you, but I can be a bigot as well. I can be prejudiced mm -hmm. as well. I can be, yeah. you know, I can I can overlook mm -hmm. certain things because yeah. we're human. In over that inflate, over inflate certain things, and it's a self protective mechanism on both sides. Yeah. And that's Absolutely. the funny thing. Absolutely. More so, I would say, with people of color, it's it's Absolutely. like a a response. Whereas, yeah. like, um, it's a visceral it, response. Yeah, yeah. it's like yeah. A, a white racist, you know person right is like is still having like a response of, of fear of annihilation that's coming through and that's how they express that and then the response to that is to label okay anyone who looks like that is not safe for me you know and it's it's yeah. very it's just so simple really in that way 
um, looking at it not as like something that it's like, this is not who we are. These are like trauma, stress responses that we inherited yes. that are expressing a certain way, right? I'm trying to be like non-dual about it. <laughs> um, yeah. I and, commend and, you for that. That's not easy. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you all. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I would love to talk about um, something else that I think is really important to the work that you do, which is the influence of martial arts, things like Taoism, yoga, uh, and even herbalism on your practice and, and your teaching. And your philosophy um, is so much more complex than I think a lot of people really know. Um, except for the ones that you are willing to like sit with and talk to that ask you questions and stuff. And, you know, I'm in the house and I hear you talking to people sometimes an hour after class and I'm like, yes, philosophy yeah. time. That's yeah. the best part. The part where he's working you out is the worst part. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Well, I think the herbal, the herbalist mm -hmm. certification side is just functional. You know, as a dad, as a young father, mm -hmm. I didn't have you know, predominantly women. I was raised by women because there are more women in, in, in my family than, than men at that time. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't that I didn't have male examples. I just didn't grow up in the house with one. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that becoming a father, just as I had learned to self-ritualize and, 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 and have an initiation process in my youth, I had mm -hmm. to find one to become a father. So mm -hmm. the first thing I did when I was becoming a father was fast for 32 days liquid without any guidance without any mentorship without i just read on it i you know people i really respected and looked up to talked about their 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 limited experiences of it and i said okay in my mind i didn't even say it out loud i just said this is what i'm going to do you know i need to do something because i was terrified i was like I, you know nobody, there's nobody around i didn't have a really good relationship with my father at the time when i called him to tell him he was going to be a grandfather again he chose to try to belittle my, my wife. So I cut him off completely. And I felt like that was a mistake. And I said, okay, well, I can't inherit any ritual from him. Anything I get from him right now might just be toxic. So let me just figure out what I need. And fasting was that thing. And let me tell you, by day five, I had total recall. By day 10, I was remembering full books that I read. By day 15, I was going in the trance, having conversations with people, blacking out, coming back, and they would just be like, yeah. And I'd be like, what the hell? <laughs> like, I was having these paranormal experiences that some of them I couldn't even talk about to people because it would be too beyond their comprehension. Maybe not um, my audience, but. <laughs> well, you know. All right, well, I, you know, I used to work for a place called Floor Plenty when I was fasting, and I think I was on like day 21. And, you know, they had roaches. They weren't like the best. They were a very old building before they moved to, to, to a different place. And I was a flower care specialist. And on day 21, I saw a roach coming across the counter and I looked at it and I just said, well, my mind stopped and it stopped. And I said, go away and go back the way you came. And it went back the way it came. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so I stumbled into telekinesis. You know, I didn't read about it. <laughs> I stumbled into it and said, did that just happen? I was walking down, you know, the same day I was walking down the street and I saw a group of pigeons. And I said, you know what? I'm going to tell them to come here. And I called the pigeons with my mind and all of them came to me. And then I told them to leave and they all left. 
I mean, you know, just a little taste. There's so many more. Yeah. But that's just a taste. That. As far as the herbalism is, is, is after fasting and all these things, just I was able to download, if you will, a term we use today, mm-hmm. access to all of this intuit, intuitive knowledge that would just guide me to things that I would read about or guide me to things that I felt I needed to acquire in fatherhood. So herbology was one of those things. And I was taught herbology by a woman called Arcus Flynn, who owned an herbal apothecary and an herbal school across the street on 4th, 4th Avenue between 2nd between second and 3rd Street in the Lower East Side, mm-hmm. who, wow. was a, who was an L and a licensed RN for over 25 years and outwardly gay, right? And this woman was amazing. She was like a like an auntie, Caucasian woman of European descent. Um, and she taught us so many things about herbology, things that blew my mind about the medical industry, things that doctors do that they don't even let the people know. Um, that's for another conversation with you, me and you, yeah. maybe in private. But yeah. that was where I got my herbal certification from my influence so I was like okay I have to be a doctor now because I don't trust the doctors I never trusted the doctors mm-hmm. when when Jossie was born she was anemic and we went to the nutritionist one day and they were trying to feed us dairy and they were trying to feed us all these things and all this medicine and I just had had a debate with the doctor we went back and forth for like Classic. 20 minutes and he was in he was blown away because I had studied so much information he had no clue about and I was throwing out alternatives about different things and he couldn't handle it. He was like, you know what, Mr. Williams, we're just gonna have to, you know, maybe I'm not the right doctor for you. You know, you seem to be very well read and very well acknowledged and versed. I think you should seek out an alternative doctor because I can't. He just said, I can't. And so he was also very racist. He didn't realize it. He was very biased. He didn't realize it. But in the conversation, he started understanding his his bias and his limitation. And I respected him for that. The fact that he just tapped out and said, you know what, I think you should find alternative information. So that's where the herbology came from, it was functional. Yoga also was functional because I realized that I was a very angry black man and I needed to find something (laughs) to help me channel that energy into something useful Mm. to benefit me so that I could let go of a lot of anger from things that happened in my childhood, anger that happened when I was growing up in, in, in Trent, New Jersey, anger that would happen with teachers and all types of things mm-hmm. of people imposing their own will and limitations on me that I had to break out of. I didn't have anyone to help me with a lot of those things. So yoga helped me, it helped me with meditation, chanting. I used to chant in the middle of the night, midnight, I chant for hours when you guys are babies, you know? because it really fed my soul Mm -hmm. so much, you know, Mm -hmm. that it became a part of my life. And then I started studying capoeira. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I had a yoga guru and I had a a guru, a a, a mestre in capoeira, which, you know, when you were two years old, he did a ritual from Brazil with you. And he did it with Jossie, where when you bring the baby to his birthday celebration, all the babies, if there was a baby, in there, he would put the candles out with the baby's hands. And we were terrified. That's so metal. I had to trust (laughs) this man with you that he wouldn't burn your hands. And he did it, but you were so blown away 
like you cried like five minutes later, like the shock of like, did this man just put a candle out with my hands? And it was okay. You weren't hurt or anything like that. But, you know, we always tried to immerse you and your sister with culture as mm-hmm. young as possible so that you would download things before you were seven years old. Like yeah. download things that you would later on in life be able to call back mm-hmm. in your journey in life. Yeah, even I'm- if you, you know, yeah, well, I remember getting it directly from us. You know what I mean? Well, I remember you saying, so the capoeira growing up there is like, really, I feel that mm. maybe more, one of the more, uh, that's one of the more strong influences, the the chanting. Yes. You have the story where you're like, yeah, you would like, as a baby, hold me on your chest while you did chanting. And, yes, you know, exactly. I, I, I think that's the reason I'm even a musician, right? I'm a singer. Mm. And, um, you know, the movement stuff, I didn't really get so much. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm not a terrible dancer, but but You're I am. really good. You're much better as a teacher. Trust me. You're just <laughs> an intuitive mover. You dance free. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with well, that. I, I think that a huge part of that is like growing up being, you know, in the, um, I forget what they call it in Capoeira, where it's like. The, the circle the, is called a hoda. Yeah. Yes. It's pronounced yeah, yeah. hoda. It's spelled R-O-D-A. Yeah. Yeah, there, there it is. Yes. And, um, you know, whenever I listen to that, because I listen to that, you know, when I'm cleaning or I'm having a rough day, and it just really opens this part of me that is very, very real. Like, I almost want to say that um, being there uh, as a child helped me remember whoever I was before I was born or something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. Um and that's really present for me. That's really, so what I'm really wanting to speak to, you know, cause I'm getting a little emotional. I'm like, thanks dad. But I love you too. And thank you again so much for doing this. Um, oh, but so I, I want to speak to the effects that rituals have right. Um, on someone, um, regardless of whether or not they actually understand what's going on. And so it's like, as a baby being in the Rhoda, right? Mm-hmm. Or is it's, yeah, I tried. It's okay. <laughs> being in the Rhoda um, and not knowing what the fuck was going on, but <laughs> being an adult and having that as a somatic imprint, having that as a cultural, um, it's one, of, one of my you know close collaborators is Tata Hazumi, or friends collaborators. Um, and they used to run a, a school called Ritual is Justice, which was kind of engaging with cultures as if they're like cultures as spirits, cultures as bodies, cultures as their own sort of um, mm. beings unto themselves and, and people mm. express them, right? And this kind of uh, bridges into the whole field of like mimetics and, 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 and also like value systems as entities, which is kind of how I like to work with this stuff, which is like, kind of a callback to the animist understanding, but incorporates the more modern metaphysical and rational sort of things, right? Um, so yeah, the, the sort of imprint uh, of the cultural soma, as Tato would say, um, on the individual uh, physical soma is a real thing, you know? It's yeah. like, why can't I? And this is true too of like, when I put on like certain types of music, like why am I do, like, intuitively doing you know, what you would recognize as like African dance movements that I mm. never learned in any mm. um, 
like this is just this is just emerging right so it's like mm -hmm. what's coming through me is is there's definitely a very genetic physical mm -hmm. um aspect to this that um where we're like um i like to think of it as like a vinyl record right and mm -hmm. when you're recording something on a vinyl record you're making an imprint and that captures the sound right and i don't know mm -hmm. all the mechanics of it but i do think that our bodies do that with the, with like our you know our muscles very specifically but other parts of us too um mm -hmm. we capture almost like a camera or or mm -hmm. a record um yeah whatever is um going on around us and we hold it and um sometimes that can be really good and sometimes that can lead to illness right um, exactly. when you're talking about like channeling your anger um, and I do think that the martial arts definitely played a role um, in terms of how you approach working with denser emotions like that, right? Because like your anger has definitely been in service in many ways. Like you're very protective of your family. <laughs> Ferociously. Cool I would fault agree. <laughs> I, would, I would agree. I, I, I've seen I've seen the positive and the not so positive side of that, and I you know yeah. obviously wouldn't trade it for the world. Like I'm very grateful, but um, yeah, you bite people's heads off sometimes, <laughs> as do I. Like it's a thing. It's it's we're animals. We have teeth. We need to have teeth. <laughs> uh, we need to right. acknowledge these parts of us that uh, you know this sort of Puritan Christ, Christian kind of influence. Um, there's a lot of shame and the Christianity has a lot of really valuable archetypes and in, in a lot of the like, sort of what what we can, uh, the potential of what humanity, humanity can be, right? But when right. we just look to the potential of what humanity can be, right? When we just like look to Jesus as like the end all be all of what's the perfect human and we don't acknowledge how he got pissed off uh, and flipped right. all those tables in front of the temple, right? right. We just look at him walking on the water. Um, right. We miss the point, I think. Right. Absolutely. We miss. Yeah. We 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 miss what allowed him to attain what he attained. Right. Without any suffering, without any, mm -hmm. you know, and you know, Yeshua. Every book conflicts with how he was crucified. Right. In the book of Job, he was hung from a dogwood tree. So in my mind, oh, we're still getting hung from trees. Like there's still mm -hmm. a sacrificial mm -hmm. symbolism happening in this, how the systems are maintained. So mm -hmm. in other words, that you know, yeah, the potential of what the religion can be is not actually what the religion has become and done to the yeah. world. You know what I mean? And I think that the first problem with the religion itself is that it wanted to eradicate the past of what had existed maybe millions of years before it was even here. Mm -hmm. And so we lost so much vital history, human history, because of mm -hmm. the interpretation, I think, more mm -hmm. so of what the religion, people interpreted the religion to be, instead of the religion evolving from what we call paganism or what we called the older yeah. uh, natural, Right. Uh, relationship to the planet. Stuff, yeah. you know what I mean? mm -hmm. um, so the magic is always there. I, I, I tend to use the term magic all the time mm -hmm. because I believe that's exactly what life is and what we're practicing all the time is an inherent magic and a, and a, and a, and a spell casting or receiving mm -hmm. of spells. Yeah. 
our um, influence on so i think like our our sort of reality uh how we understand it is that like we are us and then there's the rest of the world and we're mm. in the rest of the world and then like the world does things to us and so we need to make sure that we work really hard to conquer the world so that it doesn't do things to us that we don't like right um mm. uh, very like separatist very dualist and and mm. and i think that um in the west particularly we're starting to actually evolve out of that and remember yes. we are we are a part of this whole system right and we have the unique opportunity to observe and interpret certain elements of it and so we are it doing that to itself you know in a right. lot of ways um we're not just like yeah we're humans and everything else is everything else like that's that's a very strange way to look at reality right um right. and well for us <laughs> yeah so when we when we think about right when we think about when we think about magic right and we think about the limits of consciousness human consciousness specifically we think about the limits of that and we think about the limits of the human body um whatever it is that's happening it's so much bigger than us and i think that it's really a gift that we get to experience this wonder and this mystery um rather than like oh we don't know what is happening so we are just it's probably not really happening because we can't understand it like it's so or it's bad no for good us. for us right? yeah or it must be bad right um right. because because i need to feel safe and in order to feel safe i need to understand right exactly. um rather than just letting ourselves be held and trusting the process that we're mm -hmm. a part of um right. yeah it's kind of a rant but i yeah. would agree with everything you said um you know the, the older i got the more i realized how much magic was around me mm -hmm. the whole my whole life mm -hmm. um you know sometimes you have to lose things in order to understand their value mm -hmm. that's also an innate way of, of of evolving into a conscious being you know a conscious uh, uh accountable human being you know what i mean mm -hmm. you realize your carbon blueprint you realize your impact on the world you're mm -hmm. the world's not just impacting you you're also impacting the world yeah. and so once i realized that i have the power to impact the world that i have the privilege to impact the world mm -hmm. that they have the ritual within me to help me access the tools i need to impact the world in a positive way mm -hmm. i do everything i can you know uh if I've learned water's a superconductor. Mm -hmm. So when it rains, I don't complain, <laughs> right? I actually pray and project my thoughts of hope and dreams more during the rain because it's mm -hmm. an amplifier, right? Mm -hmm. So now I use the rain differently. I understand how sacred, why the water's so sacred. When I'm out in the sun, I realize that that's really the only way that as a, a Pan-African or diasporic person, I can get the vital vitamin D I need. Mm -hmm. and other nutrients that we probably don't even know about or minerals right so every chance the sun is out i go get that sun because it helps me fight depression it helps me fight negative thinking it helps uplift my spirit so the magic is all around me i learned re very recently during the pandemic how depressed i was i didn't realize because i'm just mm -hmm. going 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 surviving 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 okay i don't want to get sick i gotta make sure the family's this Gotta make sure all the bills are paid. Gotta make sure. And every day I would just take a walk on the parkway. And now walking is a ritual for me every morning. And I just walk with no goal, 
no intention. Oh, I'll go down this street today. I'm learning my neighborhood like never before. I've been here forever. And it's pockets of Brooklyn. I'm like, really? This is here? Amazing. So now everything's become this journey of exploration. And it's become magical, you know, looking at the sky and the trees and now the space in between, watching things move through the space. Wow. There's so many things alive that I've taken for granted. There's so much life that I've taken for granted and have not tuned into that I've allowed myself to have access to. And uh, sometimes it takes a situation like that for you to really realize and cherish what you do have, you know? Um, so I, you know, I'm very, very excited about my days. Now, when I get up, even when I don't want to get up, I get up Mm -hmm. and take my walk because I know the minute I breathe that air in, and the minute I feel the wind on my face and, you know, if it's a good day, the sun's coming out, you know, every day above ground is a good day. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have a word for this, which is experiential medicine, Mm, which is just like the healing of being. And the, mm. the intentional cultivation of being, right? And how mm. can I experience being in a way that's healing to me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that this comes out of an emergent ritual practice because you're holding so much space for just like what is going to happen that you don't know is going to happen yet, and you're ready right. to hold it and to and to read it in real time and to map it in real time as opposed to impose some sort of predetermined map or try to figure out how everything connects to everything else. You're just like in the Allow. map. It's like an yeah. RPG, you know, kind of thing. I think you, well, you grew up very, very young and you had to kind yeah. of hold this, this, this responsibility uh, very early in life. Well, I'm glad I had it um, because I think at, at the age I got it, I was able to grow into it. And so I would say, you know, part of being growing up in the hip hop, in the era of hip hop that I grew up in, we call it, we call little, little, little people like the younger children around you, we call them the shorties, right? Until it became an determined endearment for a girl. We called the little kids shorties. And so shorties were all around the neighborhood. And whenever we would do things, they would just want to follow us around and mimic us and copy us. So even before I knew what being a mentor or being a guide or being an elder was, there was younger people around me looking up to me. And I remember being a younger person looking up to my bigger cousins or looking up to a person that I influenced. So I think that it was very natural for me. Again, I was, I was, I guess, privileged in that century using, since we're using the word privilege, right? We don't realize the privileges we have. But I think mm. growing up in hip hop culture put a lot of us in the position to become elders, even though we didn't realize it. And, and in some instances, everyone wasn't responsible with that or wasn't able to grow up to be responsible with that. But I think that the influences around me, my grandmother, my, my grand uncles, my great uncles, my great aunts were such a positive influence on me that, and I had little brothers as well, that it was just natural to be a big brother to people. I'm the oldest of my, mother, <clears throat> of my mother's children. So being in that position, I always had to defend my brother and make sure he wasn't getting, you know, go through the things that I went through because I didn't have a big brother around me. So, you know, that innate natural protector came out of me young because it was functional. Mm -hmm. It came out when I, when I had to have access to it. I didn't always want to have access to it. I didn't always want to be that person, but you know, Mm -hmm. I was put in a position where I didn't really had a choice. If I didn't protect my brother, he was going to go through some of the things that I went through and I refused. I loved him way too much. I refused you know, and as I grew older, 
you know, I tried to do the same thing for Daryl. And I think that that was a part of it. Then becoming a younger father, being a young father also put me in a position of leadership um, and mentorship and fatherhood. So I think being a father was the biggest catalyst to becoming a mentor later because I just look at myself mm -hmm. as a big brother and uncle and a father to people in the dance. Mm -hmm. So it's an extension mm -hmm. of fatherhood, if you will. Um, and what is it like? I mean, it's probably the most fulfilling thing you could ever imagine being a father, being an elder or mentor to someone and watching them grow, watching them find their voice, watching them figure it out. You know, and being a father allowed me to give people more room to mm -hmm. find that and drop little hints, little pebbles in the pool when I needed to. Mm -hmm. ripple when I yeah, because your daughters are stubborn as hell. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, but that also was a learning curve for me because right. you're 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 such you were around such strong female role models. I made sure of that. Your mother made sure of that, not just your mother, mm -hmm. but you know. Yeah. I was proud to have you around strong women because I couldn't teach you that. I could only teach you how to be an equal to a man. You know, okay, this is how men think. You might not like it, but hey, this is it. Like, we're, we're not like you. You're not gonna always have access to the intuitive, intuitive things you have. We're not gonna always have access to the, 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 the level of empathy and sensitivity you have. You know, we have our own empathy and sensitivity. We're sensitive. Mm -hmm. We're actually very sensitive and very oh, yeah. insecure, but we're yeah. never allowed the space to show it. So, right. you know, mm -hmm. that kind of puts us in a position to find a role as a protector, defender, or provider, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I'm, I would never give that up in the world. I think that that's also a privilege to be your father, mm -hmm. to be a protector, defender, and provider for you. So I took on that role willingly because I watched someone take care of me. I watched my grandmother play both of those roles. I watched my mm -hmm. mother play both of those roles. Mm -hmm. I think that once women were, you know, not even allowed, took their voice, <laughs> I'm so proud, took mm -hmm. their voice, took the reins, they realized that they had it the whole time. Mm -hmm. But it had to happen. It had to happen. Yes. Yeah, well I said. I think that that had to happen for women to realize, hey, we're actually in control of this whole shit anyway. Like, <laughs> And I think that now we're ready to be here for you and protect you and defend you again, because that's mm -hmm. our role. Yeah. You know what I mean? I we're not this. saying you're not able to do it. We're just yeah. saying we're built for it. Like we're mm -hmm. constructed to do it. Like this is what we do. You know? So, you know, mm -hmm. if you look at various indigenous cultures and, and the flexibility, right. Oh, absolutely. Of, absolutely. of expressing uh, femininity, masculinity, neutrality, all of these different things while still like holding space for the like, okay, so this is a specific type of body, we'll call it a male body, but you can still be a woman in society, right? And there's plenty of that for thousands of years, right? I want to give credit to like, well, you spoke a little bit about like women reclaiming their voice and that mm -hmm. movement. I'm speaking a little bit about like queer, trans, non-binary, that movement. Mm -hmm. And I think there's now a movement of people who are like, on the opposite sides of the spectrum, you know, masculine and feminine, also mm -hmm. stepping into a deeper realness of like, yeah, no, that polarity is also very real, even though all the other stuff is real. And like, how do we do that in a way that's not oppressive to each other? And we're still hold, upholding this, like, yes, like there can be 
women who are like nurturing and feminine and that's not a weakness like there can be right, 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 men who right. are protecting and providing right. and it's not right. uh dehumanizing it's and it's right. not emasculating right. to step out of that role we are being pit against each other which is always what mm -hmm. happens in systems when movements happen and so now for me it's more of a political agenda than it really mm -hmm. is about the real people on the ground yeah and, oh and yeah they're totally being exploited Right, right now, and, and I don't think yeah. that they're 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 always conscious of it. Mm -hmm. Just like you know, black li black people's Black Lives Matter is being exploited. Like everything becomes totally being exploited. Everything becomes a corporate <laughs> yeah. industrial yeah. like marketing strategy to make money yeah. for the people at the top one percent. I will mm -hmm. say this: I have no mm -hmm. problem with anyone who identifies the way they are, but you know, I, I of course I have my limits. Like I have my limits. I'm just old school. I have my limits, but I'm not going to mm -hmm. put anyone down. I'm not yeah. going to try to demasculate or dehumanize anyone to get my point across. Just like I yeah. would not like anyone to force me into a position that I feel is uncomfortable. Like, if yeah. that's what you want to call yourself, fine. But I don't think I should be forced. Mm -hmm. we, need a, we need boundaries to understand mm -hmm. where we cannot have boundaries. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So it always mm -hmm. comes back to coloring outside the lines and coloring in the mm -hmm. lines for me, you know? Mm -hmm. These boxes are not all prisons. These, these right. limitations are not all oppressive. You know, these, mm -hmm. these roles are not all against our, our evolution as humanity. You know, I come from, the, you know, I've studied yoga. Mm -hmm. Deities are transgender. When you look mm -hmm. at the deities yeah. on the temple walls, they mm -hmm. are hermaphrodites, the majority mm -hmm. of them in the Hindu culture, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. where, you know, there's always room. Like I said, the ancient cultures, there was a place for all of this. Yeah. You know, it yeah. was revered yeah. as being God in the flesh or goddess in the flesh, like yeah. a divine being, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, who were, who was yeah. able to live both experiences in one body, yeah. Yeah. which was very rare. There's a, but, there's a shamanic you know, nature to exactly. having access to both energies. Exactly. Yeah. There's like a pandering to that where, where it's not actually honoring the real thing, which is that this is like, in my opinion now, cause I went through this, it's like a spiritual path. Right? right initiation and and some right. people i think everyone has to go through it i think some people belong uh there i think some people stay there you know and and fully and then the option to fully transition is really great that we have that privilege now because um, right. people in the past didn't have that they were just exactly. like this is my body doesn't fucking matter i'm still playing the role of the woman in this society and i'm accepted by the other women um and I think that, you know, we should, we should be able to do that. But for some reason, we medicalize things right off the bat. Whereas like, I know, it, I know people specifically who that option saved their lives and that's great. Mm. And I'm all for it. Mm. But for me, woman by definition means womb. So, and I'm playing, this a play on words, right? Right. Etymologically. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I would rather say, okay, yeah, I identify you as female. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. If that's what you want to identify as cool. Mm -hmm. For me, it's backwards. Like, people want to identify as a woman but they're not really able to have birth mm -hmm. for me it's like okay i would rather identify you as female so here's my interpretation of it and mm. you're welcome to you know interpret how you well i'm not an expert but, you know what i mean this uh, is just my my, yeah, my, my I, attempt to try to understand yeah. it you know yeah no i appreciate i appreciate you being you know just presenting your point of view here because this is a very controversial topic and Absolutely. I think we need to talk about it more and just be like look this is how I see it and like if that offends people that's actually a, an opportunity to 
deepen into learning and rapport and understanding. And right. my, my, my personal interpretation of it is actually a little, is the other way around. So it's like, I see womanhood as the role, right? And it does, womanhood does come from like womb, womb man. That's true. But um, I see um, womanhood as encompassing like trans womanhood and cisgendered, which is, you know, you're born that way and you identify that way. Um, womanhood. And there are two completely different kinds of womanhood. Like you can't collapse the two. The experiences of a transgender woman are just not the same as the experiences of a cisgender woman. Um, and it's not like, I think that sometimes that difference can feel threatening for certain people because it's the assumption is that you're denying the trans woman's role or importance or experience in society. And that's not true at all. Right. Um, I do think that, um, again, if you look at like certain indigenous cultures, there's so many that it's like a well, Native American is one. Yeah, Indian there are North, yeah, North, North Native American, South American, mm -hmm. um, tons of them. I, th right. there's like a map. I think there's like a map that you can find where you can just like click the different bioregions and you have all the different terms for all the different uh, third and fourth and fifth gender roles, right? But that's the thing is that they were roles. They're roles. And you're still like, a lot of the words, pretty much every single word translates directly to man who is a woman or woman who is a man or one person who is both male and female, but they still recognize that there's like a, there's a polarity, there's a binary, but there's a, there's a way to play with it that is richer and more complex, you know? So they're acknowledging yeah. both at the same time. Um, and, you know, you have mythologies where, uh, yeah, a lot of the divine beings are both male and female. They're intersex, hermaphrodites is the older term right. for it. The, right. Yeah, um, they both mean the same thing. Um, yeah, there's, this, there's something in the psyche of humans that has the capacity to hold space for that complexity while also acknowledging the differentiation and the extremes and the binary within that and I think that we've lost the ability to recognize that that binary is not a threat to you know the the the, the larger picture in any in any right. capacity you know it actually it's actually what's holding it together in my opinion mm. um and I do think that my role specifically is to both hold that you know, as a woman who has gone through like a non-binary initiation sort of ceremony, if you will, and does like have a lot of fluidity in my, what I see is like my role that I'm playing, right? Um, I think it's really important for me as a person to hold, hold that boundary in a way that doesn't feel like it's um, harming people, right? So it's like, yes, trans femininity, trans womanhood, is is it is completely different from cis womanhood and i think we need to acknowledge that and i think that we can acknowledge that in a way that's not saying oh um you're not right. a real woman right that's not what i'm saying but that's how what i'm saying could be um taken by a lot right. of people a lot right. of people are probably going to hear this and be like she's a turf not a turf <laughs> i'm so out of tune with what uh, yeah. exactly <laughs> So. Turf means, so it means trans exclusionary radical feminist, which basically means like not acknowledging trans women, like kind of being like, oh, trans women are just gay men that this is a, this is a common stereotype. Trans women are just gay men that um, 
want to abuse women by pretending to be women, which is, I'm not saying that that's impossible. I'm sure there are people that are that, but well, anything's um, possible with human beings. Yeah, right? exactly. It's like with that, you can't just collapse everything oh, into that category. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that's I'm like, fair. I'm playing with an edge here, obviously. And you're also playing with an edge here as someone right, who is like right. very much like traditionally masculine man who also has reverence for femininity, who is, has a well-integrated feminine side. Um, we're both in the complexity, you know, even right. if it looks like we're, we're, you know, we're not necessarily adhering to the, to the oppressive traditional structure. We're just, we're able to hold it with nuance in a way that's exactly. compatible with the complex nature of what it means to be human. I think a lot of people just aren't willing to hear that because it's such a painful spot, you know, like well, yeah, trans it's women a raw are very, wound. it's a raw wound, you know, so trans women totally are not super it. respected in our culture. So it's like, it can be hard to talk about this in this way, but I think it's necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's been a blast, my love. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I really appreciate you and thank you for making time to make me a part of your podcast. Yeah. Um, uh, I love you. Okay. Um, and I'll talk to you after we get online. Okay. I love you very much. Thanks, Thanks again for listening to the Oscillator Stone podcast featuring Seiku Haru. If you're curious about Seiku's work, you can check out any of the links in the show notes and make sure to stay tuned for next episode where we'll be talking with Brendan Graham Dempsey of the Metamodern Spirituality podcast about intentionality and emergence. Until then, take care. Bye.